phone didn't. Yeah, the phone, yeah. So um, I just want to just give us a little perspective of where we are exactly in our pursuit of pleasure. Uh, last week we talked about, well, we tried to establish the past two weeks the idea that um, we're here for a purpose, and the purpose we said was to have pleasure. But I don't, not just regular pleasure, like advanced pleasure, sophisticated pleasure, high levels of pleasure, high quantities of pleasure. That's what the Almighty wants from us. He wants us, he wants to, he wanted to give, he you know, was incapable of giving when he was just him. He wanted, so he wanted to create humans, humans capable of accepting the goodness in its totality, capable of rejecting it, and therefore capable of experiencing the highest levels of pleasures because we're able to earn it. So the first thing we learned uh, about pleasure uh, in general from the Jewish perspective is that uh, there's different kinds of pleasures. There's easier pleasures and the ones you have to earn. And what we're going to be seeking is specifically the ones that you have to earn, because that's what the Almighty wants from us. He wants us to earn the pleasures, hence have, have the highest levels uh, of, of pleasures uh, that uh, is possible to, uh, for, you know, for a human to, uh, to experience. Uh, last week, what we tried to do was to understand the proper balance or status of Simple pleasures. What about simple pleasures? Well, we, first thing we established was that the Judaism does not uh, does not reject all physicality, all physical, all sensual pleasures as being bad. Um, and specifically, we said that uh, someone who does abstain from physical pleasures is doing something wrong because the Almighty gave us the physical pleasures to enjoy as well. We have apples, even though they're totally unnecessary for any for life to. You don't need apples, but they're delicious. And the Almighty gives it to us because he loves us and he wants us to enjoy. Actually, they have a very good uh, enzyme in them for your digestive tract. Oh, okay, so there you go. But totally you can survive healthy. really nicely without apples. <laughs> Trust me, I know. I don't eat apples. You're missing something. I know. Whatever. I don't eat any New fruits of that kind. New research is coming out all the time on apples. The last time she gave apples, you see what we got into? <laughs> it's yeah, that's funny. Interesting article I read the other day on apples and how necessary they are. Yeah, I like coffee. Like, how about coffee? I love coffee. Everyone loves coffee, right? I haven't it's read also any good for articles you. On, on that. Chocolate, right? Only the, the start. The world is full of delicacies that are here for us to enjoy. That being said, there is a danger that comes with someone's total immersion into physical pleasures that they run the risk of losing sight of the greater levels of pleasures and making the chocolate bars of, the, of, of life a primary focus. And unless you're a hedonistic or nihilistic, uh, that shouldn't be a pursuit. Everyone agrees that there's, there's more advanced, there's more sophisticated. You don't want your kid playing tennis, as we said last week. Your kid just plays tennis all day and all night. Well, what, you know, get a job, get a family, you know, get a life. Do something. Try to change the world. Try to accomplish something. Why? Even though there's nothing, nothing bad about play, playing tennis, it's wonderful. But if that's your only goal, it's your only focus, it's your only drive, it's your only it's the only thing that you're uh, focusing your attention your attention on. Well, you're missing out on you know the greater, more sophisticated uh, uh, stuff out there. What is the cost of that? Uh, what does Judaism say the cost eternally is? If one only engages in hedonistic pleasures, or one gets pleasures from being a you know being a bad person, after this life, we talked about uh, you know humans go into dust. I, I don't know the answer to this, which is why I'm asking. What does Judaism say about heaven and hell and it, the eternal cost of of bad behavior or of not achieving the highest levels of pleasure while we are here? 
So I, I, what I what I, what I do hope is that at some future class I can have a whole hour long or hour and a half long discussion on reward and punishment. But um, very briefly, I'll say that the cost is not going to be measured in ways that we would typically think. Reward and punishment, we typically think as being something which is external to the action that brought about the reward and punishment. Right? So we say, hey, you spent your life in a hedonistic fashion. Here's a roasting fire. Let's chuck you in and grill you for a year and a half, right? Or eternity. Right? That's how we view it. In actuality, it's much more painful than that, but it's not something which is external. It means the, the pain and anguish someone experiences when they realize that they missed an opportunity is much more painful than the pain where they get a zets or they get thrown in a fire or whatever. The pain of someone knowing that you had the opportunity to accomplish so much and to achieve so much and especially in an eternal way, and you just wasted your time with silliness. Wasted your time with silliness. They always give us this. They always give this example about someone who um, was, you know, presented to a world for a small amount of time that it was just a room was just full of like diamonds. Take, take as much as you want. Fill your pockets. You know, take as many bags. And then, and but there was also free ice cream. So he said, oh, you know, just ice cream is delicious. You know, maybe I'll worry about that later, you know. And he's there for, you know, a week and he just, you know, all he's doing is just having the free ice cream. And then he goes back to, you know, to real life. And he's <laughs> like, all he has is like whatever got stuck between his, uh, you know, in his French cuffs. That's all he has. That's all he has. And you had such an opportunity. You could have acquired it, gobbled it up. It was so easy. And you just spend your time eating ice cream. Think about the pain that would go into that kind of decision. So that's how we view it. It's just that someone has, we have opportunities. Opportunities to accomplish, 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 and have pleasure here as well, as we'll, as we'll see. When we talk about pleasure, the higher level of pleasure, we're not only referring to uh, pleasures that are, oh, give up now, sacrifice now, so in some future lifetime you'll have, you'll have, you'll have, you'll have, you'll have pleasure. No, we don't, we don't, we, we don't say that. Even now you can have it, but it's all magnified and multiplied. After you're dead, because after you're dead, all you have is spiritual sensors. You don't have the physical sensors. So your spiritual life, if you don't have the spiritual nourishment, you're 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 you know you're you're spiritually starved. So, like like in our example, the the man's capacity for ice cream is just taken away, and all he wants is diamonds, and he has none. Right. So that's how, that's just, you know, but uh, there's there's a lot more, obviously. I'd love to have a, uh, a whole class on reward and punishment and different perspectives, different aspects. There's, there's a lot, there's a lot of words that go, that are that are mixed in it. Someone has to, it's not really clear what is what, you know, what is Tchiat uh, Team resuscitation of the dead? What does Mashiach mean? How does that fit in? What does Ghanadian paradise mean? Uh, what are the punishments? Olam Haba, the next world, all these things have to be put into uh, organized and just uh, clarified. Can I have a colossal at some point? I said, yeah, I plan to have one. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, okay, so we were saying, so there's a danger of someone making that a focus. Uh, and also he said that the Torah has many restrictions and prohibitions against pleasure. And that doesn't mean that the Torah wants us to have a limited pleasure. We said specifically the Torah wants us to have maximized pleasure. 
So why would the Torah refrain uh, or tell us to refrain from pleasures? Doesn't make any sense. Rabbi, you said that God wants us to have pleasure. Give us Torah. Torah is all about restricting pleasure. What's up? The answer is, is that all the restrictions that the Torah gives us on pleasure are all on the lowest levels of pleasure. Because if you spend too much time in it, you make it too much of a focus in your life, you lose out in the bigger stuff. So, uh, you know, it's the, in our example, back to our example, it's like you have a little bit of ice cream, but make sure you don't have more than one cone of ice cream a day so that we can focus on what's really important. Yeah? And, you know, if you don't have the ice cream, you might not, you might have, to have the full energy to collect all the good stuff. So use the ice cream as an energy booster, right? Use the ice cream as a way to appease, like we, we gave the example, the way to appease your body, right? Your body needs to be uh, on board, when, you want, when your soul wants to accomplish, your body might reject, might, might rebel against that notion. Uh, so Isaac, Isaac wants to have prophecy. What does he do? He eats a steak. Not just a, not just a steak, a 72-ounce steak. There was a video on YouTube recently. I don't know if anyone saw it. About this. Uh, yeah, this woman, like a 110-pound woman, set the world record for eating a 72-ounce steak in like three minutes. The steak was almost bigger than her. Yeah, and the previous record was like 15 minutes, and she did it in three and a half. Does he want? Yeah. If you're interested, you could. She's hungry. And she's like, we like with her hands. Yeah. Okay, so that's what we talked about last week. And this week, we're trying to maybe move up a notch, even two, maybe even three. We'll see how it goes. And talk, okay, fine. No, so. If all physical pleasures are on the lowest level of pleasure, well, what could be what, what's what's greater than physical pleasure? What's the next step up? And we want to also understand what's the next step up, but also how exactly, on a uh, mechanical level, what is different means uh, what is qualitatively different about it that makes it a more sophisticated pleasure. Well, you could use sex for an example. Yeah, but... Uh, Outside but s- the confines of marriage, mm-hmm. building a family, building... Um, so you're saying, so you're saying, so you're saying like pleasure of love, for example. Pleasure of love? Yeah, because, but, 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 but uh, you know, just regular um, unhinged sex could be just physical pleasure. Right, and you were saying, how would you kick it up a notch? And I would say you would do that by establishing a family, you would put... Pleasure of love. You would put a fence around it, if you will, uh, making a positive contribution to society. You're giving back something rather than... Positive contribution to society. Okay, so you just you just mentioned two of the highest levels of pleasures. One of them love, one of them meaning. There's one even, like, between physical pleasures, the next one up is a pleasure that we call happiness. I couldn't think of a better word for it. Happiness. How is happiness different than any sexual pleasure? Because it's a give and take. It's a receiving. Happiness. It's, it's internal. It's internal. What do you mean internal? Mm-hmm. As opposed to? External. Wait, are you happy? Depends on happiness. What is what caused by what? So we're saying happy. So is there a disagreement here? You said internal, you said chocolate bar, which is external. It's also no, happiness. I was arguing. I would say happiness is important, but when it's coming from outside. Yeah, when he's talking about the chocolate, it's just the temporary one. Temporary. Okay, temporary, internal. 
and that, mixed them. To me, happiness is more satisfying. It, it's, it's, um, Would everyone agree that happiness is better than chocolate bars? Yes. yes. Yeah? Yes. Why? Why? Why is that better? It lasts longer. It's not transitory. It's not transitory. And it's a choice that you don't have to have anything. You don't have to get anything. You can just choose to be happy. You don't have to. Ooh, I like you guys are so good. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so I think you guys, those three themes that you that y'all said are the three themes that characterize happiness. Number one, happiness is an experience. It's a pleasure. It's not dependent on anything. It's internal, like you said. It's a choice that you make. When you have the pleasure of a chocolate bar, it's wonderful. Chocolate bar, ice cream, whatever you know, whatever, whatever it is that is causing you a pleasure. If you don't have the chocolate bar, well, you don't have that pleasure. The pleasure of the chocolate bar is dependent, contingent, reliant on something else. Something contributes to that pleasure. As opposed to happiness, you're just happy even if you don't have anything contributing uh, contributing to it. And that's why it's it's ongoing. It's just it's 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 a temperament, it's a mood. It's just the way you are. You're happy. Why? Because you're happy. And like you said, it's a choice. And I'm going to try to demonstrate this thing that no matter what circumstances you're dealt, no matter what cards the Almighty you know gives you, you can be happy. If you say, "Oh, I'll be happy if I have X," what you're really saying is that the happiness is contingent upon X, and then that's not happiness. Happiness cannot be contingent on anything. But, right? So if you say, oh, I'll be happy when I have this fancy car, or I'll happy when I have this fancy house, or when I get this job, or this relationship, or right? that will make me happy. No, that won't make you happy, because a lot of people have that relationship, have that car, have that house, have that job, and they're still miserable. So I was going to say that happiness comes from the outside. For instance, I'm happy as my wife is happy. The only way I can get <laughs> no, but happy ser- wife, happy life. <laughs> yeah, but, but seriously, if my family is happy, it makes me happy too, regardless of whether I have a car or not. Uh, so, but then it's still again uh, there is this contingent element to it. What you, what? you can be happy only if your family is happy, right? And now they withdraw their happiness. That means you're not happy as well, or like in general, like there is some, your family is happy, perhaps you're happy, but something outside changes, the SS comes. All of a sudden, your family is not happy. So you're there's happy. no, are you claiming, Vitaly, that there's no way to be happy under duress? There's no way to be happy uh, in persecution? There's no way to be happy? There's no way to be positive? You can make it. Maybe it's much harder. Well, and it's, it's a lot harder. You, okay, so what's the definition of happiness? Let's work this out. Meaning? Victor Frankl. Victor Frankl. Man's search for meaning. Yeah. That's exactly what I was thinking. Found meaning and purpose, and therefore some happiness in a concentration camp. I mean, so that's that's a that, that's a very good example. You hear what he said? He fed, Victor Frankl found more meaning in suffering. You know, and he specifically uses suffering as the reason why he was he had meaning. Suffering brought about his happiness, so to speak. Seems like then that can have this feeling of happiness. We we are where we think we should be. Things are going the way. Then the letter from ILS comes. <laughs> 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 Total sense of well-being. Uh, well, 
person wants this. Folks are about as happy as they make up their mind that they want to be. Abraham Lincoln. We are as happy as we choose to be. Happiness, I heard from someone else. Happiness is a thermostat, not a thermometer. I'm like, what's a thermostat? Is? Oh, a thermostat is what you, the setting that you, as opposed to the measurement. It doesn't, it's not a measurement of your state. It's a setting that you decide to put. But what I want to do is take the, uh, the Torah perspective. What does the Torah say about happiness? And how is the Torah guidebook for us in our pursuit of this pleasure? It says, as a man thinketh in his heart, so he is. Okay. So well, I want to, let's first cast away one misconception. We'll all agree about this. Everyone agrees that wealth doesn't get happiness? Can we agree on that? Everyone agrees? Yeah, it helps, but it's not a prerequisite. Does it help? Oh, yeah, well, maybe it does. They say happiness at a certain level. I mean, when you start rising the income, I mean, I remember reading something when you got to like a certain income, people got happier, and then after they got so high, then they started the happiness level yeah, dropped. It's about $80,000 according to the study. Yes, mm-hmm. No, but take Tevye from Shalom Aleichem, right? Very poor, happy. So you can be happy. Well, I would agree extreme poverty is a is a happiness inhibitor. I think we would all agree on that. For well, someone who doesn't have any food or, you know, it's harder to be to have the right perspective. I'd rather be wealthy and miserable than poor and miserable. Well, yeah. Yeah, but um, what about if you were given the option? I know someone uh, was actually presented with this exercise. If you had the option of being either happy or wealthy, which would you choose? Mm. So this person said wealthy. But, they, but, but, but the other side, you're happy. So if you're happy, then who cares about anything else? And uh, yeah. But I, th- I think we can all safely agree that you know wealth alone is not going to bring someone happiness. And based off the last class too, I work with people in the families. I'm in the financial service industry. And I've dealt with the people who built the wealth. Were like the happiest, greatest people in the, the world. The people that are spending it. And then, after they passed, and went to their kids and became trust babies. They were the most miserable people in the world who were handed tens of millions of dollars. And you can tell the happiness came because they, they built something. The kids just got to hand it to them. And, I want to say another point. This, I think, is going to maybe present this discussion um, in a, like a greater it's going to present somewhat of a tension in the discussion. I'm going to make a claim that there's no reason why today, in today's society, anyone should be unhappy, at least in America. And why is that? Because ostensibly, in today's generation, we have more, more amenities, more access to clean water and healthy food, plentiful access to entertainment, to travel, Anything pretty much we want to do, the world's out of fingertips. Information, education, knowledge, everything, everything is available to us. Like, a hundred years ago, if you told someone a hundred years ago that uh, in a hundred years, people would just, when they had dirty clothing, they would just go to this box and push a button and it would come out clean. And then they would go to another box and it would come out dry. People would say, oh my gosh, that, that must be like the Messiah came and miracles are happening. And any piece of information that you ever wanted, you would just go to your phone and say, okay, fine, how... Um, tall as the Empire State Building. And boom, we'll just spit it out to you like that. And any, any piece of information in the world is accessible to us. And any one of us, if we decided to go tomorrow to Los Angeles and take a month vacation, we pretty much, most people, most middle uh, class Americans could do that. Or Hawaii. We could do it. We have the world at our fingertips. Our, if we want music, uh, television, movies, sports, any form of entertainment... 
Uh, we have cars that we could transport us, you know, from, you know, from one end of the United States to the other. States. There was a bunch of kids uh, uh, recently who went cross-country in like 31 hours. They set the record. 31 hours cross-country. They drove 90 miles an hour the whole way. They had a whole bunch of uh, radars, like a whole sophisticated system of radars. You know, detectors. detectors. They like brought their gas with them in like canisters. So they just kept them. They didn't stop to refuel uh, every, you know, every six hours. They just drove the whole, like you're able to, we, we have the whole world in our hands. The average middle-class American today has a better life and more amenities than the wealthiest person that lived 200 years ago. Right? We think of John D. Rockefeller who had 2% of all of America's wealth, which is a, staggering amount of wealth, but he didn't have internet, and he didn't have a computer. He didn't have a car. I mean, he might have had a car, but, you know, you know your, your Corolla would destroy his uh, little uh, you know, Ford Model T, whatever he had. We have so much. How is it possible that we're not happy? Because the point is, is that having stuff won't make you happy. That's right. Having stuff, because happiness is not contingent on stuff. You could give you a person all the stuff in the world, they might not be happy. So this is a critical point. Happiness cannot be dependent on anything. Happiness has to be from within. It can't be dependent on anything. And you can say, if I get X, I'll be happy because we see that we have X. We have Y, we have Z, we have everything. And we're still, some people of us, some of us are not happy. Well, I would... You always want more? You You're never want, satisfied? You, yeah, you can want more stuff or you can want more of intellectual pursuit, but you always want more. I think that's part of our DNA. It's part of it. Our I really DNA, do. Our DNA. I think it's the desire to, to have and to achieve. And Security, that's what makes our species. Elsa Maxwell's father left here with one. He says, look, he says, I'm poor as a church mouse on his deathbed. He said, well, let me tell you one. He gave her five things, but one thing that stood out with me. He says, be careful collecting material things because they have a way of collecting you. Yes. Mm-hmm. Who said that? Elsa Maxwell's father. So, what does the Torah say about all this? I'm just trying to, like, let's just see what what, what do we draw from the Torah, because we said the Torah is going to guide us to all these pleasures. And there has to be Torah instructions how to achieve happiness. So, what do we have? We have, first of all, what you mentioned, um, everyone here mentioned, that you, you know, people have an insatiable appetite. You have one, you want two. What does the Torah say? Me, Sheyesh, Lomana, Rotzeb, Masayim. Whoever has a hundred, a hundred uh, mana, which is the kind of was the currency of the day, wants 200. And you have 200, what, what, what will you want? You want 400. Clearly, uh, having stuff is not the way to go. What, what do we find about happiness? Eze hua shir, a very famous statement. Eze hua shir hasameach bechalko. Who is the wealthy one? He who is happy with his portion. With his portion, with his lot. I want to take this statement and break it down. Who is wealthy? He who is happy with his lot. Now, obviously, the first question that would jump out on you is that you would say, who is wealthy, he who is happy with his lot. What does wealth and happiness have to do with each other? I think the first thing we can take from this is the Torah is telling us, hey, wealth doesn't beget happiness. You want to be wealthy? means what you think that wealth, you think I'll be wealthy, I'll be happy. Who is wealthy, i.e. who is happy? Someone who is happy with his lot. 
Don't think that who is wealthy is someone who has tons and tons and tons and tons of assets, resources. You know why? Because those people really aren't happy. Or not necessarily. They could be happy, could be not. They, there's, no, there's no more reason for them to be, uh, to, be, to be happy than you are. And specifically, like someone said, hey, we have an insatiable appetite. If you, we want, if, you wanna, if you have 100, you want 200. If you have 200, you want 400. You know, so who is unhappier? The person that has 100 the person that has 200? Let's do the math. The person who has 100, he wants 200. So how many is he short? He's short 100. The person who has 200, he wants 400. So how much is he short? No, no, no. Well, percentage, but, you know, if you think, I know, I, I, I read this online. Uh, there was this, uh, there's this uh, blogger that I like, James Altucher. I've never heard of him. He's great. He's awesome. So he said he was once in a conversation with a guy. He didn't say the guy's name. I wish he did. Um, but he, a really, really, really wealthy person. He said the guy has uh, like $2 billion. You know. And this guy was lamenting the fact that Larry Page, Larry Page of Google, has $17 billion. We think of like, like who of us regular folks, how can you possibly complain when you have two billion dollars. There's nothing that you cannot do with your money. Nothing. You could buy you could buy countries. <laughs> you could buy you know you, you But it's an external standard. The point is is that you have that but you see someone who has more and you're like, oh gosh, he has fifteen billion dollars more than me. But that's again human nature. It's not about how many zeros you have. If Larry Page had seventeen diamonds or seventeen whatever pebbles and this guy had only two he would still would be unhappy, right? Remember that the, the whole concept of keeping up with the Joneses also. <laughs> and I'm not advocating this concept and saying that it's a faulty brand, faulty concept, yet it's hardwired. Okay. Although but what's the Torah telling us? Try to understand it and try to work around What's the Torah telling us? Ezehu Ashir, who is the wealthy one, is happy with his lot. Mm-hmm. His lot. What does that mean, his lot? What about someone else's lot? Well, yeah, maybe the second thing we have to do is if you want to achieve happiness is you have to focus on your own lot. If you focus on someone else's lot, there will always be someone who has more than you. And you may always be miserable if you're always comparing yourself to other people. So once you make your station life, if you're happy with what you have, right, and you're not looking at what other people have, well, then you'll be happy because if you focus on what you have, You'll be happy, and I'll demonstrate that. So first of all, don't focus on other people. That's the first thing. I have uh, once, uh, in jest, made a suggestion that uh, you know the average American spends like four hours a day watching television. A day? Yes, a day, yeah. Something like that. Now, um, more often than not, when you watch television, you don't watch television about yourself, right? It's mostly about other people. Other people, their stories, their lives... You know, there are ups and downs. And what we're doing when we're sitting in front of the television is delving into other people's lives. Right? Um, and oftentimes, you'll see people that have a lot more than we have. And how is that not going? What that is basically doing is fueling this envy that makes us miserable. Right? If... If the key to me being happy is to focus on what I have and not what anyone else has, and then I sit 
there and, and you know just absorb what other people have and they have even more. How am I not gonna how am I gonna not be unhappy? Basically what I'm doing when I'm watching television is just sitting there and exploring other people's lives, hence making myself or my life seem less less important or less of a focus of mine. And you know, I think it rivals Einstein's definition of insanity. I mean, what's, what's Einstein's definition of insanity? Doing the same thing over and over. And expecting different results, right? <laughs> to me, I find it mind insanity. This is insanity to me. My, my definition of insanity. Uh, and that is when someone spends more time worrying or caring or reading about uh, or spending time with or fretting over other people's lives than over their own lives. You know, I, when you go to the uh, checkout counter, you see all these magazines, and they and they must sell millions of them, right? Because every, every 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 grocery store has them, and it's all about like the celebrities and like what their lives. Oh, they're oh she's pregnant. Oh my gosh, there's the baby. Oh my gosh, or like how are they doing them in the relationship? Or who are they? Do? It's insane. How are we spending so much time focusing on other people's lives? Well, so luckily we know the target target demographics, and it's very. Such is fine to realize that. That what? That we are not the what, us people? Yeah, us or people or whatever it is, right? Yeah, but there are lots of people that spend significant time caring about other, pe- other people's relationships more than perhaps their own relationships. That's insane. And My definition of insanity. Like, <laughs> like you will find those people in libraries or classes like this. Yeah, well, I guess, yeah. But the point is, is that what that is basically doing is fueling people's a lack of self-worth because you just think about what other people have, what you don't have. You compare yourself to other people, like you lose your self-esteem. And, you know, your life is about, is about you. Well, it and drives an external measurement of your own measure of success and what you have accomplished. Exactly, and it highlights what you don't have, what, what you right. haven't accomplished. And so your basket is always half. So, I, so my suggestion is instead of, instead of uh, tell me if you guys like this, instead of spending four hours in front of a TV, spend four hours in front of a mirror. Mirror work is very hard to do. <laughs> it's hard because you're looking at yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, there's, whole, there's whole classes on mirror work, and most people can't stand in front of a mirror I for mean, about three minutes. Yeah, I, mean, I, I, I don't know if it's serious or not, but just imagine. But the point is, is that we should spend at least as much time thinking about other people that we think about other people, think about ourselves. But you know, Rabbi, I, I don't know if I was, it wasn't a serious suggestion. I made a suggestion in jest, but it might, there might be some truth to it. So, so let me ask you this. Have, have, has, Ju, has Judaism lost its way in the sense that there's a, there seems to be a tension? Jews are the people of the book, but there's a tension based on what you're saying and the reality. The reality being that the classical Jewish mother, the dream of their child is to become a doctor, a lawyer, yeah. an investment banker, to not make as much money, but that is an outcome of, of these learned professions, mm-hmm. to push them and push them and push them. So is there a tension between the desire of, of Jews to achieve and get more and make more and get more education so that they can make more money versus what you're talking about. Okay, is, but when did I when did I when did I make the suggestion that someone should not try to make the most money? Well I never suggested that. I said so people shouldn't focus on other people. And in fact, that brings me to the next my next point. And that would be that 
we have another statement in the Talmud that says, this will be a shocking statement, I think. Okay? Chayav Adam Lomar Bishvili Nivra Haolam. Chayav, which means the person is obligated to say. The person is obligated to say. It's an obligation. The world was created for me. The world was created for me. Now, obviously, it sounds like a very egotistical statement. The entire world, everything, for me. Right? And that, it could be perceived in that, in, in that way. And some people can say, oh, the world's for me, not for this guy. <laughs> right? I can cut him off in traffic or you know, <laughs> cut him off in line. Uh, but uh, <laughs> uh, obviously, that's not the intention. The intention is, is that you have to spend your entire life building yourself. The world, the world is there for me. I, ha- I have responsibilities. I-, I have opportunities. I have to make sure that I spend time on myself. Don't say, oh, there's other people around there. Let me think about them. The, I have to focus and put a tremendous uh, premium on myself. I'm here for a limited amount of time. I have responsibilities. I have stuff that I should accomplish. And I have to make sure that I invest in myself. I spend time on myself. And obviously my family, my circle of importance, my life, my career, uh, my children, uh, and my community, and, and, and the Jewish people. And I specifically think that when I, uh, as a mother, you want to encourage your child to accomplish. Because think about the responsibilities of, of what that statement entails. The world's created for me. I, I have to accomplish and I think this this um, Jewish drive for accomplishment uh, is uh, re- could be reflected in in people trying to you know get the best professions, the best jobs, make the most money. Also, a defense mechanism. What? Uh, because the Jews been pushed around so bad and so on like that. They want their- I'm going to talk about this also a little bit later when we talk about the pleasure of meaning, uh, which is a, a, a two steps up. Um, we're gonna we're gonna address this point about why Jews are driven and um, you know Jews accomplishing more like just um, statistically just above and beyond you know everything everything and and Ivy League schools and education and Nobel prizes and you know that's twenty two percent of all Nobel Prize winners are Jews uh, when the Jews are less than a half of one percent. Of the world population, you know. Yes. Yeah, it's like um, the Jews are about like 0.2 percent of the world's population uh, when they, you know, they are responsible for 22 percent of the world's Nobel prizes, which is used sometimes as a measurement of extreme success in a certain field. Um, in uh, you know, in the United States, the people say, "Oh, the Jews control Hollywood," and you know, if you actually count the numbers of Jewish producers and Jewish directors and Jewish, you know, hot shots and, you know, big names and all, well, yeah, the Jews are represented, you know, far what their numbers suggest that they should represent. And in finance as well, you know, it's, <laughs> you walk into J.P. Morgan, you know, and walk into the big Wall Street, half the place is Jewish. And, you know, Jews are doctors and Jewish are, Jews are lawyers and Jews are CEOs of all the biggest companies and the technology, you just... Take, take, give me the five biggest technology companies, right? Larry Page. Well, Larry Page, Sergey Brin, and Eric Schmidt, they're all three are Jewish. You know, the guys at, at Facebook, obviously we know he's Jewish. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg. Mark Zuckerberg. Oh. Yeah. And Larry Ellison is Jewish. Oracle and Steve Ballmer is Jewish. I, I didn't know of course Steve Ballmer is Jewish. Huh. Yeah. 
each and go on and on and on. Uh, Michael Bloomberg is Michael Bloomberg is Jewish. Yeah, poor calls of the elders design, right? Uh, yeah, but it's it's I'm saying it's undeniable that Jews are just taking statistics. I, I don't know, maybe this is a controversial thing. You know. Maybe it's uh, you know maybe it's going to promote anti-Semitism. Like we know that the the protocols of Elder Zion, the famous forgery, uh, was used to promote anti-Semitism. Well, it was more about blood libel, right? Yeah, but it was all about Jews controlling finance, and the uh, South Koreans got a hold of it. They said, "Give us the juice. We need help with our economy." <laughs> so there's two ways to look at that. And, and, they have, and their schools, they have. Uh, they study Talmud, yeah. They study Talmud in Korea. It's like, why are these Jews so successful? It must be because of the Talmud that they spend. <laughs> my dentist, he's Chinese, and he told me that now, well, he is here for trick, but he told me now in China is one of the most popular best selling parenting books How to Bring Up Your Child as a Jew. Not in the religion, but. How to make it as smart as a Jew. And 10 years ago, when I met my wife, who is also Chinese, I, so eventually I fessed up and said, yeah, I am a Jewish, I'm not somebody else. So she didn't know anything about Jews except they're extremely smart. So I said, oh, good. You know, for for uh, for for millennia, the Jews we have laws saying that there cannot be anyone who's illiterate. So, at a time seven hundred years ago, when ninety nine percent of the non Jews were illiterate, could read or write, one hundred percent of Jews were literate, and it always was like that. And even females, even females, obviously, even females as well. Yeah. Our yeah. culture is based on studying the Torah, memorizing Education. the Education. Passing on. I mean, exactly. It's all built around people academics. The people of the book, a premium on education. Absolutely. And of course, when in Europe, the new world, all those laws against Jews being able to own property, you cannot own land, you cannot do, go into agriculture. So what else can you do? Money lending? It was finance, commerce. Money lending. Law. And, then, and all, anything else which requires intellectual pursuit, but not being limited by the inability to own assets, mm-hmm. which was up until the 18th century, I think. When it, the, yeah, the emancipation of the Jews from the ghetto, the Enlightenment. French Actually, Revolution. it was a good thing, because they're in pharmaceuticals, medicine, gold, silver, things that mean something. I mean, you can always go out there and plant crops. I can, uh, this way, there, my mother told me that uh, if he was a big farmer, that's what they were concerned with. Then they got in trouble. They had to go down and see the Jew guy down there. He gets a pharmacist or something like that, or, or deal with money. They, that's how it got hated. Mm-hmm. The money lending was challenging. Well, well, well. Why the Jews got hated? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that was one reason. <laughs> okay, let's 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 step back to our, our subject hand. So I'm trying to make the argument that uh, the Torah is trying to guide us with these instructions to ha- be happy. And Torah tells us you have to realize that the world's created for you, you know. And in the words of Dave Ramsey, the average millionaire can't tell you who got kicked off the island, but a bunch of broke people can. Yeah. The, the, the point being is that 
<laughs> that the Torah tells us you better focus on yourself. Don't think about other people. It's bad for you. Why? You'll, like you said, it'll raise your expectations and make you feel inadequate. Uh, but also, like you're living your life. You have your responsibilities. You have your circle circle of importance. Make sure you you know you spend your time on that. Right? Bechelko, Who is the happy? Who is the wealthy one? He who is happy with his lot. You're not someone else. Uh, and the last thing is, is that, you know, oftentimes we use as a measure for our success, uh, the metric that we use is other people. And the second we compare ourselves to other people, we're taking our own individuality out of the equation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, this too is also reflected by a very interesting, um, very interesting narrative that we find in two places in the Talmud. It's the first documented near-death experience. We know that uh, uh, in the past 50 years, there was an explosion of research on near-death experience. People almost die, and they're, they're, they're like kind of, you know, struggling between life and death, and they see stuff, and some fascinating books about people, like they just have experiences that are like, uh, you know, out-of-body out of, out of body experiences. You know, I know this, several people right here in the Kingwood area that have had near-death experiences. Yeah, it's, and it's just, and they all say the same thing, what they, what they experienced. Actually, no, my lady friend was nearly killed on uh, Kingwood Drive, and um, she's in the process of writing a book about it. It was many years ago, and it was, it's absolutely fascinating to, to hear her experience. Yeah, but they, 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 and, then, and, they and they say, like, they, they, the guy wrote the book, or Life After Life, or something like that, uh, where he interviewed, like, 150 well, that people. That was Brian Weiss, and it was called, probably called Many Lives, Many Masters. No, I'm talking no. about Life After Life. No. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, but this was, like, in the 70s, the guy wrote this book. He wrote, he wrote a follow-up book as well. Um, where he interviewed like 150 people that had these near-death experiences, and he found that their their experiences are remarkably the same. You know, they say that there's this light and they don't want to go back, and it's so wonderful. And and it, what it demonstrates for us is that even when a body is dead, some consciousness goes on. We call that the soul. And this is, you know, if people have doubt as to the existence of the soul, this is one way to. Uh, remove that doubt by seeing people that their bodies are not functioning. They have experiences they can tell over about that. Uh, you know when the body was uh, revived, resuscitated, and the soul was once again uh, put back into the body. Anyhow, that being said, the first documented case of of a near death experience is in the Talmud, two places. And says so a story about this guy. He almost died. He came back, and what did they do when he came back? They said, "Oh, well, what do you see?" So what he says is, I saw Elyonim Lemala Tachtonim Lemata. I'm sorry, Elyonim Lemata Tachtonim Lemata. What does that mean in English? The lofty people are on the bottom, and the people that are Tachtonim, the people that are the low people, are on top. He said, I saw an upside down world. The people that we value today, right, uh, we value them highly, they're not, they're not viewed highly. The people that here are viewed, well, yeah, you know, just another dude, whatever. There, they're valued highly. Upside down world, and this piece of Talmud um, is understood in different, you know, there's different ways to understand it. One of the classic ways to understand this piece of Talmud is that the way we measure success, the way we measure accomplishment, the way we value people is different than the way God values people. How do we value people? By I apologize. By accomplishments. We don't take into account a person's abilities, potential. 
We don't view people as individuals. Everyone gets the same standardized test, right? Everyone. And even some people have, everyone's an individual. How can you, how can you judge them? How can you judge them with the same measuring stick, with the same yardstick? It's not fair. Someone, you have the brilliant kids who are able to not study at all and just, you know, get A's. And you have the other kids who are just, you know, less gifted and they have to work really hard uh, to get a C. So who worked harder to accomplish what they accomplished? The guy who got the C. Who's valued higher in our society? The guy who got the A. So um, one of the classic uh, explanations of this piece of Talmud is that when it says the people that are lofty are on the bottom, it means those people that accomplished a lot but had more potential to accomplish even more. And it didn't maximize their potential. They just relied on their innate gifts and they just kind of you know breeze their way through life accomplishing a lot but they didn't do their jobs so therefore they're on the bottom of the total scale as opposed to the people that weren't given that much of a spectrum of potential to accomplish great things but they maximize their potential they maximize their potential therefore those people are viewed all the way to the top because they got 100% or close to that of what they were expected of so, in essence, what I'm trying to say is when we compare ourselves to other people, what we're saying is the definition of success, the metric of success for that person could be used for me as well. So, if that person has more, well, then I'm inadequate. If that person has less, well, then I'm, I'm awesome. I'm superior to him or her. Uh, and, that, and, 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 you know, that's, that's, uh, that's an unfortunate... Uh, that's an unfortunate way of measuring things because the way what's really important is you with your abilities, with your particular uh, circumstances of your life, the consequences, everything that goes into you know what composes you. How did you do with what you, you were dealt with in life? That's what's going to measure your success. So uh, you know we find in the Rambam Maimonides he says a statement like everyone. In the world, every single human being can be as great as Moses. Can be as great as Moses. You, and you, and you, and me, and everyone. Everyone can be as great as Moses. The problem with that is that we know Moses was a prophet. Additionally, we know that no one, not the greatest person, who's alive today can achieve prophecy. So what does it mean that everyone can be like Moses? What does it mean that everyone can be like Moses? If we can't achieve prophecy, how can we be like Moses? Answer is, Moses had a greater capacity for greatness. He maximized it. We have a smaller capacity for greatness, but we could also maximize it. Hence, we could be like Moses, not quantitatively, but qualitatively. Um, so if we maximize what we're supposed to do, would that lead to more happiness because then we're doing what we should be doing? Yeah, I'll, I'm going to try to collect this all together. I feel like I've, I've, I've spoken about a bunch of different things individually. I won't finish this last point. You see someone who has lots of money or someone who's very intelligent. What, what, happens, what happens to your happiness? You might get a little envious. Hey, I kind of wish I had that. Or hey, like, that guy's so sharp. I wish I was, if I was that sharp, who knows what I could accomplish? Or if I was that uh, handsome or charismatic or, right? And that's one way to induce misery. Focus what other people have. You don't have that. It makes you unhappy. What you have to realize is you are judged as an individual. 
and you're given exactly what you need to, to succeed. We say in the morning, the morning prayers, one of the morning blessings is Shasa Li Kol Turki. We say thank the Almighty that He gave us everything that we need. Everything that we need to have. What? What do you mean? I don't have tons of money. I don't have incredible intelligence. I don't have charisma. But my job, what my specifically tailored for me responsibility in life that I have, I have everything that I need to accomplish it. Someone else has a different responsibility in life. Hence, that person has the tools that they need to accomplish what they need to do in life. And I shouldn't be jealous or envious of that person because that person has a whole different set of responsibilities than I do. If I look at them and say, oh, they have this, I don't have that, they're better than me, or I have this and they don't have that, I'm better than them, what I'm really saying is we have the same mission in life. But we don't. I have a mission, he has a mission. Everyone has their own mission. I can't compare myself to other people because we have different missions. Think of Usain Bolt. Who knows what Usain Bolt is? Usain Bolt. He's like the fastest man in the world. He was the smartest the guy in Germany. No, not, not necessarily the smartest, but kind of the fastest human that we have measured. Jamaica. Huh? No, just, he's a runner, an Olympic runner. So he was once at the Olympics in London, walking around with his you know number in Jamaica, whatever, and he sees a guy with a huge 15-foot pole, a pole vaulter. And he said to him, Hey, how come he gets a pole and I don't? How come he gets a pole and I don't? Not fair, he goes to complain. I say, wait a minute, no, no, no. You're a runner. They're a pole vaulter. You need sneakers. They need a pole. Different responsibilities, different tools. Why are you comparing yourself to uh, to the pole vaulter? It's insane. And speaking of pole vaulters, let me say a quick joke. So uh, there was this uh, journalist who uh, went to the Olympics. He sees the guy with a long pole. And he walks over to him and says, Oh, uh, are you a pole vaulter? So he said, no, 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 I'm German. Uh, okay. <laughs> no, I'm German. <laughs> pole, a uh, pole like Polish. Walter, Walter, yeah. <laughs> says, no, 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 I'm German. It takes five pole locks to put in a light bulb. You want to hold the ball for the terminal ladder. Yeah, so, uh, so that's the thing. We have to recognize that the gifts that we were given are specifically tailored to what we need to accomplish. We shouldn't look at other people because it's, it's silly. Like They're a pole vaulter. We're not. They need the pole. We don't. And um, to wrap this all together, we said a few things. We said, number one, wealth doesn't make it happiness. Who is the wealthy one? He was happy. What do you mean wealth, happiness? Don't think that the wealthy person is the happy person. What's really going to be the happy person is the person who's happy with what he has. With what he has, not what other people have. You focus on what you have, not what other people have. They have it for a reason. You don't have it for a reason as well. You don't use other people as a, as a yardstick for your success and failure. And I think just to wrap this up, I would say, if you really want to be happy, you have to realize that what you have today, right now, is more than you could ever possibly get. What does that mean? I could demonstrate, I could, I could prove to everyone here sitting today that what you have right now is more than you could ever possibly achieve or accomplish or get, attain. So if you're not happy now with what you have, you'll never be happy. 
Okay. When you could have achieved, you have more than otherwise under certain circumstances could have. Yeah, I agree. But say I am in a prison doing twenty years sentence. Mm-hmm. How is it good? How is it more than I could have ever achieved? Okay, so let's ask the question like this. You didn't commit the crime, and you wouldn't be in the prison. That's why I said it, it could have been. <laughs> okay, like this. Let, let's let, let's try this exercise. Okay. Um, I hate using uh, finances as a way to, you know, measure or to, but it's, it's the best way to do it. So let's say, for example, I told you I should give you a, I don't know, a lot of money. Let's say, I don't know, a billion dollars. Make it a hundred billion dollars. Instantly make you. Um, one of the 85 no, richest people no, in the world. No, the richest person in the world. Instantly. But you're going to have to give me your vision. You'll be perfectly healthy. You won't be able to see. Who is willing to give up their ability to see for $100 billion? Lots Not me. Nah, well, maybe yes. I don't think so. Not so many people. Well, then, uh, yes or no? I wouldn't. I wouldn't. No. I wouldn't. No way. Maybe someone really unhappy. <laughs> What are you going to do? Like, you can't see. Like, So we just all demonstrated that our vision is worth to us more than $100 billion. You already have $100 billion. You have it. And you, know, you have it. It's just you don't appreciate it because you can't imagine life without it. If you imagine life without vision, you finally realize, oh my gosh, I can see. I'm a hundred. I have a hundred billion dollars ready in the pocket. I just didn't know it, and there's no way I could possibly achieve more than that. And that's just my vision, you know. Like that one attitude of saying, I'm, "How can I be wealthy to be happy with what I have?" Well, what do I have? I have fingers that bend. That's an incredible pleasure. I have the ability to to think. I have a family. Right? The second that I recognize. What I actually have, I'm the happiest person in the world. So, in my example of a person doing 20 year sentence, he should be happy that he is not uh, on the death row. Well, or that he has vision, or that yeah. he has feet, or that he has fingers, or that he, you know, he has taste, or he has liver, or he has, whatever he has. Whatever you have, no matter how miserable your life is, if you look at what you have, and you really, and you know, you try to appreciate what you have. You'll be the happiest person in the world. Who is the wealthy person? He was happy with what he has. Whatever you have. You know, the famous uh, statement, you know, I was happy. I was miserable. I was miserable because I had no shoes. Then I met the man who had no feet. Then I met the man who had no feet. Right? You can be miserable because of what you don't have. And we, I, we demonstrated you can have everything, kind of. You can be the billionaire and still be miserable because you want to be like Larry Page. And the second you stop and say, let's examine what I already have, you could be the happiest person in the world. If you think about what you have not, no matter what you have, it'll never never be enough. Focus on what you have. You appreciate what you have. You'll be the happiest person in the world. I want to say this story. This story is my favorite story of all time. I don't know my favorite of all time. The one I said last week about the cigarette was my favorite of all time. My second favorite of all time. So um, there's a fellow by the name of Rabbi Miller, Rabbi Avigdor Miller, who lived in uh, New York. Uh, you're nodding? You've heard of him? Avigdor Miller? 
So he uh, he was renowned for appreciating what he had. Appreciating what he had. Like, this was his big thing. He said, I want to be happy. I want to be like, the happiest man ever. I want to preach what I have. And um, anyhow, so he was uh, an old, older man. He was in his 80s. And his grandson once walked in and to his house. And he saw a strange sight. He saw a table. On top of the table was a big, like, bucket. One of those big buckets that you, like, you would, like, knead dough in or something like that. And he sees his grandfather, Rabbi Miller, with his face submerged into this bucket full of water. I just, can you imagine walking into this? Like, what is going on here? There's no to do. You like watch it a little bit dumbfounded, and like thirty seconds, he pulls his head out <gasps> and does it again. This is outrageous. What's going on? So he after he's like, did he lose it? You know, he's like pretty old. Like, why would someone do that to themselves? So he uh, he went and he asked him, he says, Grandpa, what's going on here? What are you doing? Are you submerging your head in a bucket of water? So uh, he said to him that, uh, you know, he lived in New York City. New York City, very polluted. What's the pollution? So someone told him, he met someone on the street and says, Oh, it's so polluted. It's such. What's the breathless air? It's disgusting. So I, said, I, I started to lose my appreciation of the wonderful thing that it's oxygen that the Almighty gives us. This, you know, just freely available. Like it's not available on any other planet that we know, or any other any other celestial being. The Almighty just gives us oxygen, so we should live. And this guy was saying it's miserable. I I want. I didn't want to lose my appreciation for oxygen. So I dunk my head in water for forty seconds, and then you start. You'll be appreciated again. So he, so he did. He stuck his hand in the water, and like, yeah, you stick your hand in the water. You say, oh, yeah, yeah, really? Oh, oh, yeah. Would you take the uh, the oxygen with some pollution? Yeah, I think I'll take it. I think I'll take it. Right? Not to lose your appreciation of what you have. You know? The second, if you want to really appreciate what you have, the way to do it is to imagine life without it. You want to appreciate oxygen? You have oxygen. We don't appreciate it because we can't imagine life without it. Like they throw you into the pool. They throw you into the, you're on the on the pool for three minutes, you'll start appreciating it. Because you, now you have life and add it. Taken away from you momentarily, you'll appreciate it. There's a, a movie that's in the uh, theaters now, Lone Survivor. Anyone seen it? No. Yeah, the trailer. Okay, so it's about the Navy SEALs. Navy SEALs. And oh, the movie yeah. starts off with how they train Navy SEALs. And it's like uh, one of those cut shots where they just show you like quickly like a bunch of stuff that they do. It's not like it's not like part of the narrative of the movie, but uh, one of the things is uh, they take uh, this is like literally five seconds of screen time. They take the Navy SEALs and they tie their hands behind their back and they say, "It's time for you to get used to not breathing." And they throw them in a pool of water, and then you see like one of this guy like they pull out the guy and they start hitting him. Come on, come on, start breathing. Come on. Like, they threw these people underwater for, like, four minutes. You know, and this one guy went unconscious, and they tried to wake him up. That's, the, it's about, like, like probably less than four seconds of screen time. Point is, if you want to appreciate all the wonderful things that you have, you have to imagine life without it, right? And if that means not getting underwater, try that. You want to be, you want to be happy? You got to be appreciative of what you have. How can you be appreciative if you just have it? Imagine life without it. You know, imagine take one of those uh, airplane uh, 
visors that cover your eyes. It's one of those things you only see in airplanes. Like, you know, like, you know, it's, you know, it's a curiosity. It's like, oh yeah, okay. <laughs> airplanes and executions. <laughs> it's, you know, those, those little things to help you sleep better. Mm-hmm. The visors. Know. The visors. Try living a day with that on your face. One day. No, don't take it off one day. Three hours. Like, like, oh yeah, and like try walking down the steps or like going to the fridge or going to the bathroom, right? Or anything. Try, try to live your life. Try driving. Don't try driving. But, <laughs> but uh, if, you'll do that and by doing that, you'll be able to appreciate what it is that you have. You're able to see. And this is something that none of us would trade for $100 billion. And we'd be the happiest people in the world if we just recognize, appreciate what we have already now. If I say, I'll be happy when I have X, it's baloney. Why is it baloney? Because I already have now, right now, more than I could ever possibly achieve. Maybe, 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 maybe. Either way, uh, either way, um, the second that I focus on what I don't have, in all likelihood, I won't be as happy. There's two ways to look at it. There's ways to be sit and watch television and see everything that I don't have, or I can look at myself and see what I do have. It's a perspective kind of thing. And in four short words, the Torah says, this is the way to be happy. Focus on what you have. Don't focus on what you don't have. That's, that's it. In two seconds, like, we just taught you how to be happy. And we tried to demonstrate it. If you focus on what other people have, if you use other people as a measuring stick for uh, your success and failure, you're not going to be happy. And even if you're the wealthiest guy in the world, you have the $2 billion. You could still say, oh, I wish I had that. I had the yacht, I had the Maserati, I was president, right? And there are people that have all that and they're still unhappy. Because this, if, if your perspective is just uh, turned to focusing what other people have, what you don't have, you're never going to be happy. But if you say, what I do have, if you focus on what you do have, you'll always be happy. And you'll be happy ongoing, to be continual, be internal, it won't be contingent on, 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 uh, on any other external factor. This one little change in perspective, that's all you need to be happy. Yeah, but that's not your perspective, that's not your focus, that's not your outlook. Like, So that's so that's that, and I think this is this is something that we could really, you know, this is more of a of an exercise. This is something we could achieve. We could all achieve it, and it doesn't matter where you are, quote unquote, on the income or the socioeconomic, or what well, doesn't matter, right? And and like we demonstrated, it's like we have 
you have today more than the billionaires had 200 years ago. You have, even in the you know in the you know in the materialistic aspects of life, you have more. The only reason why you're not happy is because you look at other people. Yeah, I'd like to use a comparison when I was in Thailand, when I was in Iran. You know, uh, these people don't even have a wedding band. We talk, we take for granted that we have a shovel, we have a rake, we got a lawnmower. Or a car, even though it might be a jalopy, we still got a car. They don't have such a thing. They don't have a wedding band. They don't have. They can't possess that at all. We're so. They don't have running water. Rich. No, they don't have running water. I don't have a lawnmower, but that's what makes me happy. Happiness is not Well, what I'm trying to say is that we're so dang going better off here if we would just stop and reflect or have the opportunity to go back over to some of these foreign countries and see how they live <coughs> their lands. But are they necessarily make... unhappier? Are they? Ha- I don't think so. Yes, I think they we get, they're not happy? No. Well, maybe they're not happy because of other reasons, but they're not happy because of their economic uh, situation. I don't think so. Well, if that's all you know, I guess that you'll be content with it. But, something. but once they see like an American coming through or something like that with all these treasures... All these sort of things. Um, I mean, the fire chief in Thailand used to make uh, a Thai fire chief made four baht. Well, we we hired these kids to to clean up our site and stuff like that, and we were paying them uh, ten baht, a dollar an hour, uh, fifty cents an hour. My God, what a fortune! You see what I mean? And then they they really got materialistic. Let me tell you, real fast. Very fast. We're rich over here. What I'm trying to say is we got it made. We should all be happy. And we will be happy if you just follow the instructions. It's a simple instruction. How to be happy? Be happy with your lot. With what you have. Focus on what you have, not what you don't have. You were saying? Oh, I went to Thailand before, too. And um, to me, what was amazing is that, uh, and I'm walking down the road, you know, I'm just walking. It's good exercise, you know, it's a beautiful country, you know, it rains, I'm, for a while I get wet, then the sun comes out, and I'm dry, and then it rains again, <laughs> you know, it's Thailand, but I've had people didn't know me at all, and they have scooters everywhere, you're, you know what I'm talking about, because they don't really have cars, you see whole families on one scooter, it was amazing, uh, I, 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 I feared for the, the youngest one who was barely hanging on, it was going to hit the tire, you know, because there were really like four people on one scooter, all holding on, but anyway, the number of people who didn't know me, don't know English, just see some Fellaini, as they call them, foreigner. I didn't know that. Fellaini. Yeah, Fellaini. That's what they call them. Uh, but anyway, they will stop and, and couldn't speak, but they would stop their, their little scooters and say, you know, you want to ride? You know, to wherever they're going. I mean, the kindness, you know, and um, um, the... Well, they're sharing. They're sharing. They're very friendly, very sharing people. And they don't have anything. They might have just a hammock hanging underneath the tree. That's, that's the where fact. they live. And a little scooter. But their wife and two sharing. kids in a hammock. That's yeah. it. That's right. Hammock is optional. Yes. <laughs> that's high class there. But I just, to me, it was just... Where in the Well, that's where, yeah, I was trying to remember the city where I was at, but it was the southern part. Okay, so I, I want to uh, I want to see if we have about uh, 16 more minutes left. I want to try to do a whole other subject in those 16 minutes.
we'll try to do it very, really quickly. Um, so we, we understand that the, the Torah wants us to have pleasures of simple pleasures um, and also a little bit more advanced pleasures like happiness. What about the pleasure of love? What does Torah say about love? Uh, love is even a more sophisticated pleasure. Uh, love is a highlight you mentioned. Um, love. Who, who wants the venture definition of love? What's the, what's the definition of love? I always talk about love is when you care about somebody else. You care? More than you care about yourself. Okay, caring more. Okay, what else? Who wants to give another definition? A choice? Well, it's for sure a choice. Everything's a choice here. It's for sure a choice. But the question is, how does it work? So you say to care about someone, caring. Um, it obviously, it could be that you like someone. And that would make you want to care for them. What else? Who wants to share another idea? Anybody? What's acceptance of another? Accepting. Okay. Accepting. I like the that. Differences. Um, I want to share with you guys a, a statement that we find in the... Two weeks ago, we read it in the parsha in Exodus, the middle of Exodus. We're talking about a slave, a Jewish slave. So, yeah, slavery, I don't want to talk about how, how, how biblical slavery worked. But uh, we find a very interesting definition, characterization of a slave who's not married versus a slave who is married. And it says that if a slave who is not married becomes a slave, then whatever certain law applies, supposed to be married. Um, and it says that if a slave was not married, it's someone who comes with his shirt, with his garment. And like, if you were to think of one way to describe a single person, a bachelor, uh, I can think of a lot of different ways to describe a single person. Maybe messy, or maybe... Um, not put together, or maybe single, or maybe needs a wife, or maybe doesn't have a wife, or maybe alone, why would you describe a single person as someone who comes with his shirt? Because that's maybe all he has. Maybe he, he all he has is, okay, he's lacking something. Very good, he's lacking something. But his shirt? I wasn't thinking he was lacking. Just a man in a backpack. <laughs> <laughs> so, um... The commentaries say that if, as a human, if someone is single, their life, their world ends at the edge of their garment, where their garment ends. This is who I am. This is me. This is my life. This is what I care about. When someone gets married, what they're doing is expanding themselves to include someone beyond themselves. So me, who am I? Well, it's not just me as an individual, it's me and who I love. And that could be my spouse or someone I love or my, my family, or it could be my, my community. The point is, is that when I love somebody or something, that becomes part of me. So obviously I care for it. Like you mentioned, it's something that I, um, um, it's something that I, uh, I worry about. All those things are part of what essentially love is, and that is to include someone beyond myself. We find in the beginning of uh, Genesis, it says, um, remember uh, Adam in the rib? Right? So Adam's put to sleep. Adam's looking for, he's like, oh, all the animals have a spouse. There's male, female, male, female. I'm the only one. There's only one human. What's going to be? I don't have anyone. Uh, there's, no, there's no one that I could uh, spend my life with, you know, that I could be with. 
And uh, so the mother puts him to sleep, takes out one of his ribs, builds the female, whatever that means uh, specifically. But when the, when the verse says, it says, and Adam's so delighted. And he says, this time, Zosapam, it's a bone for my bones, it's flesh for my flesh. I'm going to call this woman Chava, uh, Eve. Uh, she's the mother of all humanity. And then the next pasuk, the next verse, it says, Al-Kain, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So the Torah, the Torah's PSA, you know. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, shall cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Uh, so there's a few things about this. I'm going to try to do this as quickly as possible, but the Torah is telling us, because Adam, what was, it, what was Adam's exclamation? This woman, she is a bone for my bone. She's, she's me. She's flesh for my flesh. This is the woman I can spend the rest of my life with. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, shall cleave to his wife, and shall become one flesh. The idea of love, as obviously the, 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 the pinnacle of love is obviously marriage, which is sharing your life with someone else, which is a serious commitment and dedication. But what it's about is taking my own individuality, my own identity as a single person, this is where my life ends, and expanding that to include someone else. And that's a very, very high level of pleasure. But like we said, the higher the level of pleasure, the higher the price of admission. The more difficulty you have to, the more of your life, of yourself, you'll have to compromise. Because you're going to have to change your identity. As a single person, what you cared about was you. That was your perspective on life. That was your attitude. And everything that you encountered, you had your own perspective on it. And that was the only thing that mattered to you. You get married and you find, oh, there's other perspectives on life. There's people with different backgrounds who have different ideas about life. And I have the option of saying, oh, we're going to maintain these two separate identities. And we'll have two bedrooms, two cars, two bank accounts, and two television remotes. Even better, two televisions. Which is basically two people who are quote-unquote living together but haven't really fused to become one being. Or I can learn to give up a little bit of myself, to sacrifice some of my individuality, some of my identity, to create this new joint identity and to really have this love and to expand myself to include someone beyond myself. That's the pleasure of love. And therefore, you know, it's a, such a high level of pleasure. It's such a high uh, price of admission. It's a high ticket of entry. You have to give up so much to, to achieve it. Uh, you, you know, uh, humans are innately selfish. How do I know that? Well, okay. <laughs> but, uh, babies. Babies. oh, babies. Yeah, I always. Uh, it's, it's all exactly. <laughs> you know, I, uh, the line that I that I uh, coined was a, a small child rarely wakes up to tend to her crying mother. Mm-hmm. Usually, it's the other way around, and that's the way it is. You know, because kids are one hundred percent selfish, mm-hmm. and they they all they care about is what they want. And if they don't get what they want, they put a protest. 
they put a protest yeah. and they scream and they cry till they get it or they're miserable. <laughs> right? Because that's and all they so care about. <laughs> anyway, yeah, exactly. He's happy, she's happy. What did they say? Oh, she's happy, he's happy. Happy wife, happy, happy life. Happy life. <laughs> Do you think it's significant that it says, and it may not be, and I don't want to get you off topic, yeah. it says um, that a man shall leave his father and mother. It doesn't say that she has to. Okay, and I, I that, yes, that's very that's very significant. And I'll tell you also, I'll tell you, I'll, I, I could even expand that question by saying, wait a minute, what about the guy who went to went off to college at the age of eighteen, went to grad school at the age of twenty-two, been living by himself since he's twenty-five, or since he's eighteen, and now he's thirty-three, he's about to get married. Is the best kind of advice to tell him to leave his father and his mother? You want a happy wife? Wait, wait, wait a minute. We're telling him to leave. Him. He's left them years and years and years ago. He may have left them physically, but that does not mean he left them emotionally or energetically. Very good. Uh, if you don't get a job, he's right back there. <laughs> 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 um, but yeah, that's that's you know the point. The point being, it's not about uh, you know it's it's a it's it's a man's responsibility to make sure that he you know does what's necessary. But it obviously, would apply to women as well. It might just be the context, you know that. Adam was the one who had this um, epiphany, so therefore the Torah tells us from Adam's perspective. But also when it says man, uh, it could be that it's mean mankind. And maybe also it's a way of saying that the parents need to stay out of the business. Right. Well, yeah, but, that, but that, that's a simplistic way of viewing it. And it's also it's just so important. And, you, and, that, and, that, and, that's, and that is valid, but it's, it could be much deeper. It could be that if you really want to have love, you're going to have compromise and to drop some of your preconceived perspectives that you've had since you were a little kid. And you got them from your parents. Just your attitudes and any one of a million little little things in life and how to do laundry or how to how to fold laundry. Something which is so silly, so inconsequential, but something that couples have to acclimate to to each other. And you, therefore you'll have to learn to give up a little bit of the perspective you had from your parents, from your father and mother. Because Love means taking two people, right? Oftentimes of different genders, okay? With different perspectives and different attitudes and different backgrounds and different circumstances and different cultures and different families and everything and make them into one. How much do you have to sacrifice? So much. You have to give up of yourself and the way you were and the way, the way you, you were till now. And you have years and years of living selfishness that you're going to have to break. That's why getting married is very painful. Because there's this period of acclimation. And that's the price of admission to the pleasure of love. The Torah is telling you, you have to leave your father and mother. You have to give up of your own self, of your own individuality. You want to accomplish this? You, it's great. It's the highest, one of the higher levels of pleasures. You know? and, but it comes with a certain degree of commitment by saying, I'm in. Um, we're having one television. Better yet, no televisions. But one television, uh, one bank account, I'm in. I'm committed. I'm going to make it work, even if it's painful. You know, we don't say... I assure you, it will be painful. I, I know. I've been married for seven years. And thank God my wife is like the easiest... My wife is the easiest going person I know of, literally. She's so easy going, but at the beginning of every marriage, it's, it's painful. It's a process. And, there's two, and, and there are people that say, it's just too painful for me. We're going to live separate lives. You know? And that's unfortunate because they don't have that great level of, of pleasure that we call love. But uh, people don't wake up in the morning and say, you know what? Kids or kid or children, 
I made a decision last night, and that just I don't I don't love you anymore. I love the neighbors' kids. Pack your bags, and um, the neighbors are moving in. Why don't parents say that? Why don't parents say that to their kids? Parents don't just fall out of love with their kids. Why not? It's just not possible. No. We're not wired that way. We're not wired that way. We're, we're committed to our kids. We're, we're in, we're, you know, the Almighty just makes us committed to our kids. Therefore, we just have to love them, even though they could be, you know, like we, we've always heard of the, you know, the uh, people sometimes say that, uh, I don't actually uh, endorse this, but people, I've heard this, people say that this child has a face that only a mother, a mother could love. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that? That's really not a nice thing to say, but the point is, is that mothers or parents are hardwired to love their children. We're committed and therefore, we don't just say, oh, I fell out of love. You have to love them. Why? Because that's what the Almighty just implanted within you. Animals don't have that. Animals, they love their kids until they grow up. Once an animal, once an, an animal reaches, adult, reaches adulthood, uh, the parents don't have this ongoing relationship with them. They kick them out of the nest. You're out of the nest and you're, and you're like any other, any other animal. We have the idea called love, which is not just a way for... Uh, Parents to take care of children until they reach adulthood, but it's a, an emotion it, it that the Almighty wants. Exactly, and it's an emotion that we that the Almighty gave us, which is a certain pleasure that we could have so much of it because we could love not only you know our family, we could love our community, we could love the entire world. Think about the pleasure of love that we can experience with one person. Multiply that by eight billion people. Think about what kind of experience that is. Yes, it demands a lot of giving up. It demands a lot of self-sacrifice. You know, it's not just acclimating with one person. It's 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 caring for a community, caring for for a congregation, to really care when someone else experiences pain, you experience pain as well. It's that level of it's that level of um, of, of 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 self of, of of ignoring self-centeredness. I don't know how to say that even. You know, uh, there was once a story with the. Uh, this uh, very famous pious person in Jerusalem who came to the doctor and says to his wife, he says, oh, Doc, my wife's uh, leg is hurting us. And the point is, is that when someone you love feels pain, you feel pain as well. But it's expanding yourself to include someone beyond yourself. It means therefore, if they feel pain, you feel pain as well. Because that's you. You're no longer, your life no longer ends at the edge of your clothing. And this is a tremendous pleasure that we could achieve, that we have to achieve, and the Torah directs us how to achieve it. And yes, because it's a higher level of pleasure, there's a lot more work involved to achieve it. But it's worth it. It's worth it. And in you know, in our life, we're here to have pleasure. We're here not to just, you know, settle for the small pleasures in life. We want to have happiness. We're told how to have happiness. We want to have love. We're told how to have love. It's about commitment. It's about giving up your selfishness. It's about fusing with other with, with another person, and um, it's also a gateway to becoming a better person overall. Like a small child is selfish, and uh, you know, we don't view selfishness as a positive characteristic. In fact, it's something that, that we should spend time to try to perfect and change. Marriage is going to help us in that pursuit because. If you're going to make a marriage work, you're going to have to come into conflict with your self-centeredness, with your selfishness. 
And the only way to make it work is if you do, you will you will decompromise. So, um, let's just give a quick recap. Um, I have a lot more to say in this, but I tried to do it in sixteen minutes. Uh, I could speak about it for about an hour and a half, I think. Uh, but the ideas of today are let's just quickly recap them. We're talking about pleasure. We said we made a bold and audacious claim that the Torah is a pleasure guide. And the Torah is full of restrictions, but it's guided at the pleasure. And last week we talked about the very simple level of pleasure, the most easily acquired, acquired, you know, acquired pleasure, and that's physical pleasure, and, how, and what's the proper perspective, and what's the potential danger, and why the Torah makes restrictions against it. And this week we talked about two higher levels of pleasure, the pleasure of happiness, and the secret to achieving it is kind of very simple. It's focusing on what you have, not focusing on what you don't have. Which means to put a premium on your life, and what's important to you, what, you know, don't focus on other people. It's a, we learned about how success is really measured. Everyone is, is an individual. What we're given is what we need for our mission. So you don't have a pole unless you're a pole vaulter. Uh, whatever you're given is exactly commensurate to what you need to accomplish. Uh, and we also learned that the way to appreciate what you have is to try to imagine life without it. So if you really want to be happy, I would suggest try to imagine life without stuff that you have. So if you want to be happy, you can either look at other people and be miserable, or you can look at what you have and be wonderfully happy. And you'll be happy not dependent, contingent, reliant on any other circumstance. And it'll be ongoing. But it's a pleasure you need to learn. You need to earn it. You need to work hard to achieve it because the way we're wired is to look at other people and use that as a measurement for our success and failure. So then we'll likely be miserable. You see the television four hours of dubbing other people's lives. See what other people have what you don't have. You might be miserable. You probably will be miserable. But if you dwell on what you do have, imagine life without a car. Well, imagine life, try to live life without a car. Take, take the city bus. Take the metro. Uh-huh. <laughs> right? Take a taxi uh, to, to the grocery store. Or, uh, you know, any one of the million things that we have. Try to imagine life without a livery. You actually can't, you can't measure it because you'd probably be dead. Uh, but try to imagine life without fingers of pen. Literally, try it. If you take your fingers, all ten of them, and you put them in these splints, it's an exercise that you should try it. Try it. Put your ten fingers in splints. Go to the doctor and say, Doctor, I need splints for all ten of my fingers. And just try to live life for a day. Right? Try to open up a bottle. Try to open the fridge. Try to open the door. Try to drive. Right? And you'll come to the realization of how awesome it is to have fingers that bend. How awesome it is. Oh my gosh, I wouldn't trade it for, I don't know, a lot. A lot. And that could be escalated and that could be expanded to a million other things in life. If you imagine life without, without vision, you'll start realizing how valuable it is. What you, what you have, you'll be happy. That's true. That's what I tell my students. I work at a prison. <laughs> and they are as happy as... They choose to be. They choose exactly. to be. Exactly. Abraham, Lincoln, and the nail on the head. Exactly, 100%. You know, and it could be the simplest things. You can't think of it. Thank you, God, for my health. Thank you, God, that, my, that I have a bed to sleep in. I mean, 
And the way to do it is imagine life without it. Like if you imagine scarcity, if you take the simple thing, like, like in the desert, there's nothing more delicious than a glass of water. Yes. But something we take for granted because we have such a plentiful supply of it. LA, for example. <laughs> yeah. And imagine life without it is a way to appreciate it. Don't drink water for two days, you'll appreciate it. Right? Yom Kippur, you appreciate food, even though the rest of the year you don't appreciate it. Why do you appreciate it? Because you don't have it. If you don't have something, then you'll finally realize what you do have when you have it. So in any in, in a million things in life, that's the exercise to do, right? Be happy with what you have because you focus on what you do have, not what you don't have. And we said love. Love is a much higher level of pleasure as well than that because it's it's just, you are not just you, you're your family, you're your community. And the challenge with that is your selfishness because we, we want to just focus on ourselves. We don't want to compromise. We want to be stubborn. Uh, that's the way we are, pre-programmed as little children, and we're going to have to come to conflict with that if we want to have love. And uh, we're going to have to be committed. We're going to have to realize that this is a bone for my bone. This is me. And uh, it means caring. It means worrying. It means experiencing pain. It means giving up of my own identity, leaving my father and mother. It doesn't mean just to leave their house and take my bags. It means to leave the identity that I developed uh, for years. And that's very painful, it's very difficult, but it's worth it. And like all pleasures, uh, like the, the Torah guides us. The Torah says, this is something that the Almighty wants us to have, but he wants us to earn it. It's there, ready for the taking. We just have to learn the rules, follow the rules the Torah, the Torah outlines for us. And we could be uh, uh, well on our way to achieving the purpose of the world, which is us having pleasure. And having lots of pleasure all the time, high levels of pleasure, but it demands work, and uh, we, the Torah guides us in that pursuit. And next week, God willing, we'll talk about the ho- next two levels of pleasures, and we'll uh, hopefully you know, spend time on talking about the highest level of pleasure. But what, what, what could be greater than love and happiness? What could be greater than that? I um, uh, profess that there's two more levels of pleasure for making it a total of five. We have the simple, the material, the physical. We have happiness, we have love. Next week, we'll find out what the highest two levels of pleasures are and how do we achieve it. <laughs> what do you say? A cliffhanger. Cliffhanger. What's cliffhanger? Yes. So uh, next week, and, and you know what? And we have instructions, clear instructions, how to achieve them. Highest levels of pleasures, and we can achieve them. And the money, the money outlined the plan. It's not easy. And like we said, progressively, as you get to more sophisticated pleasures, the work is demanded. is is much more difficult. But it's there. It's easy. It, 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 it's not easy. But it's it's, it's the instructions are there. It's told us this is the highest levels of pleasure you can accomplish. You hear your job here is to accomplish it, and uh, if we follow those, we will be able to accomplish it. And uh, so next week we'll find out. I like that. And I slow little finger, huh? Yeah. Find out. You want another short joke about happiness? Your happiness? Yes. God wants Okay, everyone, if I could just have everyone just give a little check by their name so we have a, a record of who comes. Um, that's just important from the administrative side of our organization.
and we hope you all enjoyed. Hope you all come back next week. Thank you. Bring your friends with you. And uh, yeah, we're here to have pleasure. Love you. See, we have a struggle with getting uh, all these Jews who don't want any part of Judaism anymore, 50% of the population. Yeah. This is how we need to market Judaism. It's about pleasure. pleasure. And it is. It's not, it's, not, it's not like I'm making up stuff. It's not like, we're, it's not like I'm cooking the books. It's, there's no cooking the books. It's, it's, this is what the Torah tells us. You look kind of shady there. Well, well, well. A little bit of creativity. Being a little bit, uh, you know, to... Today's the, uh, what... Second, that's Super Bowl Sunday, huh? Quick predictions. Who's doing us predictions? Broncos. Broncos by? Two and a half. By two, oh, by two and a half? How do they win by two and a half? Two and a half points. I know that's what they're favored How by. How do you get a half a point? That's, I, that's a good question. We'll discuss that. I don't know what it's, it's a spread, right? <laughs> the the, the spread uh, is two and a half points, but uh, I'm not really sure how they, what is it, safety and a half? Safety and a quarter? Why do you think the Super Bowl is such a big deal? Commercial. Why? Well, commercials, yes, for a couple million dollars for forty-nine percent of Americans. Forty-nine percent of Americans um, live vicariously. <laughs> well, yeah, uh, but forty-nine percent of Americans profess to be NFL fans, fans of the of the sport. Wow. And now, remember, it's a, that means that includes women. You know, I guess all the uh, breast cancer awareness stuff actually pays off. Uh, they put the like the pink uh, jerseys on, and whatnot. And I think it's such a small percentage of that. Uh, well, yeah, but the point is, is that half of the country claims to be fans. Wow. If you uh, if you just get half the country to be into anything, well, <laughs> you know how much that United Fund CEO makes six hundred. It's 